The Aileth Quick Guide to Purim with the voices of Rabbi Mark Goldsmith, Philip Friedman, Brenda Friedman and the Aileth Kids Choir. The first time I ever appeared in the Jewish press was in the Jewish Chronicle in July 1963, my birth announcement. The next time was in July 1996 when a letter that I wrote was published, also in the JC. This was a letter of complaint. The week before, the JC had reported the ordination of my class at Leobet College, saying that seven new reform rabbis had just been ordained. I wrote to point out that the correct collective term for a group of rabbis destined to serve in reform and liberal synagogues was not reform, but progressive rabbis. Pedantic, but I felt a necessary point to make. My next appearance in the Jewish press was a few months later, in the London Jewish News. I was dressed in a white robe, blonde wig, and I was wearing a pair of wings on a two-page round-up of pictures of Purim being celebrated in Jewish communities over London. This was my angel costume for my first Megillah reading at Woodford Progressive Synagogue. The next year, I dressed as the burning bush, wrapped in chicken wire, through which was threaded leaves and red cellophane. The following year, I began the Purim service by walking to the Bimah, dressed in a white coat, sporting the legend on the back, you are about to witness a miracle. And the white coat had painted upon it in my own fair hand wavy red and blue lines and pictures of fish and seaweed. Reaching the bima, I threw the coat open, Benny Hill style, to reveal a t-shirt covered with a picture of a crowd of people led by a tall man with a beard. The miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. We have a new website. Find out more about our community at www.alith.org.uk. Purim is, in Rabbi John Rayner's words, a light-hearted festival. It brings release from the tensions which the consciousness of persecution experienced or remembered sets up within us. But Purim can have a deadly serious aspect. It cannot be lost on any adult or perceptive child who've heard us reading the Megillah, the story of a tyrant commanding public veneration, who had those who did not bow down to him executed, who was willing to kill a large part of the citizens of his own territory because their existence was an affront to him. The serious aspect of Purim cannot have been lost on any adult or perceptive child who heard the words from our Siddur when the Megillah Purim spiel is completed. At Purim time, we remember that evil is real and that it is not yet defeated. Remember what Amalek did to you. Do not forget, Amalek has disappeared from under heaven, but his spirit still walks the earth. As we boo and we jeer, who are we booing and jeering against? Is it Haman, the baddie of the story, just as we might have shouted, he's behind you, at a pantomime of good and evil? Or are we booing and jeering the heritage of Amalek, the first people recorded in the Torah who attacked the Jews? Haman, or Haman, the son of Hamidata the Agagite, was meant to be descended from the Amalekites, that classic enemy of the Jews, convinced of the need to destroy us, an infamous heritage 
which has stretched to Hitler in the past century? Or were we booing and jeering the tyrant, the dictator, the ruthless ruler of today? Rabbi Hasdasa Davis has written, I know that bullies will continue and increase their bullying unless confronted and firmly stopped. This applies to school bullies, office bullies and head of state bullies in equal measure. If the Book of Esther unites us at Purim by showing us that through clever manipulation, as Esther displays, the bully can be defeated, should not a Jewish value be that we do not tolerate a bully? We confront them till their power is removed. Rabbi Davis continues, Schools now have anti-bullying measures in which the bully is stopped and confronted and a child who is bullied is taught that they have the right not to live in fear. Office bullies can find themselves falling foul of legislation and are stopped by law or by a responsible employer. And I myself know of the case of a hospital chief executive who lost his job due to his intimidatory way of dealing with staff. But who stops state bullies? I feel that anyone who's lived with the Jewish experience cannot put aside the thought that had the other nations of the world not confronted Hitler, even as late as they did in 1939, an entire people, our people, would have been removed from the whole of Europe, a terrible feat which he almost managed. Perhaps the motives of all the nations of the world were not as pure as we might have liked them to be in the Second World War, but only the resolve of certain nations to stop Hitler saved our lives and reduce the scope of the tragedy. This logic, which some may see as flawed, is why I've never been a natural anti-war supporter. I'm aware that I take this position from the standpoint of my understanding of my Jewish heritage. We know the heart of the oppressed, and our religion has had to eschew the luxury of pacifist values. The first war reported in the Torah is just 14 chapters or three Torah portions from its beginning in Genesis chapter 14. The strange war of the four and five kings in which Abraham is embroiled as his nephew Lot becomes one among the vanquished. The episode is roundly condemned in Midrash Tanhuma, where these kings are cursed for having brought the sword into the world. The Midrash uses the words of Psalm 37, their sword will enter their own heart. Essentially, those who live by the sword have a very good chance of dying by the sword. If you would like to comment on any of the ideas and issues raised in this podcast, why not email us at podcast at aleth.org.uk. Why, though, is a war recorded so early in the Torah? Should not our document of good record only good? Only the idyllic, only the hopeful. Perfection in the Torah lasts barely three chapters, the early parts of the Eden story, before Cain murders his brother Abel. Humanity is always going to have to confront aggression. It's our nature that some among us will turn to oppression. So Judaism has accepted that the countering of aggression is permissible, as long as the circumstances demand it. The Torah sets forth rules for the conduct of war, subsequently refined by the rabbis. An army must be formed of the willing only. Deuteronomy chapter 20 sets out who is exempt from military service. An enemy must be offered terms of peace before an attack can be contemplated. They must be given the opportunity to avoid war. 
The war must be fought according to rules of engagement, protecting the environment, at least in that memorable rule not to cut down the fruit trees in a siege. Under almost all circumstances, a declaration of war must be approved by the Sanhedrin, the national consultative body, and the religious chief, in the Talmud seen as the priest, wearing the Urim and the Tumim of our Torah portions. More than that, we must pray three times a day for peace, saying the Ose Shalom, Sim Shalom and Shalom Rav prayers, inculcating into ourselves and into our community that peace is the highest value, war and aberration, which must be avoided as far as possible if we are not to distance ourselves totally from God. To me, war should not be glorified. Conflict is the sign of the failure of humanity to reach our ideals, and especially God's ideals. But I could not face living in a world where the ultimate expression of the heart of a bully, the Haman of our age, can hold sway, just as long as he only murders and oppresses his own people. I don't think that Judaism could ever ask us to accept this. When we say, O say Shalom bim Romav, our prayer for peace, in our day, we have to add in our hearts, for al kol b'nei adam, and for all humanity, that we care for all humanity. This podcast is brought to you by the Northwestern Reform Synagogue in London, commonly known as Aleth. Music by Mark Lewin and David Lessman, and audio production was by Mal Woodford and Harish Patel for Blue Blah. .co.uk Say shalom. Oh, say shalom.